Bandwidth for this week in photography is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. Hey, everybody. Of course, when you hear that, you know it's, it's me, Alex, uh, running it. Uh, Scott is, uh, is here. He's with us, just not exactly here in the studio. Uh, Scott, where are you now? I'm up in uh, Seattle, Washington. Seattle. And um, it's about a billion degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's not like San Francisco, where it's always 29 and sunny. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it is, uh, it's about 60 degrees. I think it's going to be 60 degrees all week. I just got back from Vegas, and it was 105 or something. It was horrid <laughs> but we're here we're here ready to go i hated missing i hated missing yeah. i'm glad to be back it's good to have you back also in new york who he just came just got in here by the skin of his chinny chin chin steve simon hey steve hi guys yeah it's about 450 million degrees here in new york city so <laughs> a little bit cooler than uh, where scott's at but it's not the heat it's humidity <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so we're raring to go. Um, of course, uh, we uh, want to thank uh, Cashfly for their support and um, and uh, Audible, of course, for the support of the show. And uh, we've got a new linking contest. Uh, can you give people a little information, Scott? Yeah, well, we just decided to go hog wild. We gave away the Drobo. <laughs> uh, a guy named Tim Street won it. And the way we do it is we check our referral logs. Uh, according to Technorati, we have 949 blogs linking to us right now. So your chances are about one in a thousand of winning. What's a thousand dollars worth of prizes? We got VMware Fusion, Lightroom, Aperture, pair of JBL Reference 220 earphones, DV Mat. Is that what it's called? DP Mat. It's the keyer for, Matt, for uh, Aperture, for, which is an Aperture plug-in. I got an Adobe Ball Cap, couple copies of my books on where. One uh, on one software essentials for elements. We got a camera bag from Canon, a Rhino Skin iPod case. It's one it's just big crazy. Hap- it's one box of happiness. Yeah, Christmas and, and, comes and, early. Yeah. And so, what we're going to do, if you link to us from your blog or from your website, twipphoto.com, then we're going to randomly select somebody October 30th to win this bag of goodies. We're just going to do this every two, three, four months. And by the way, folks, just so you know, we're presently in the very, very hard to get into Technorati 10,000 out of the three or four million blogs they track. We're number 6811 in rank. So that's not bad for a seven month old blog. That's fantastic. And but we uh, want to get up. We want to get up into the top one thousand. That's like the holy grail area. So we need some more links. Yeah, I I, uh, I talked to. Uh, I actually ran into Tim Street in uh, the New Media Expo. He oh, was, he was very excited about his Drobo. Yeah, well, there you go. He linked to us, and and the, I just randomly had the computer select a link, and he won. So if you link to us, you could win too. Excellent. So in the news, uh, we've, we're just going to jump straight into the news here. Um, we have, uh, there is an, uh, first of all, there's an Aperture Nature Photography Workshop Contest is opened. You can check that out at the AperturenatureWorkshops.com. Uh, and uh, so make sure to uh, take a look for that. Also, um, there's a new uh, bill that is in uh, the tier that will end the ban on photos of returning military dead. Uh, so this is um, 
this is kind of a big deal here. The uh, this is um, you know this has been the first this will be the first time since Vietnam that photojournalists can capture uh, the images of uh, of Americans returning. Is this a good idea? I think I, I so. Think it- I think it's a good idea, too. I mean, you know, the fact is, I mean, you know, journalism, the fourth estate is there to, to sort of show people uh, what's going on in the world. And, and sadly, unfortunately, there's a lot of bad stuff happening. And obviously, uh, with, you know, troops being injured and, and killed in the line of action, I mean, I think the people have the right to realize that, uh, you know, they aren't just statistics. And when you see these images, um, they really do uh, have an effect on, on people. Maybe you guys remember um, Todd Heiser won a Pulitzer Prize in 2006 with uh, really an amazing image uh, of a body of a uh, U.S. Marine uh, uh, who was coming back after being, uh, you know, killed? But it was a commercial jet air- airliner, and you can see the Marines um, taking the the coffin, the flag draped coffin out. And you can see the the individual windows with people on the plane, kind of not really knowing what was happening. But right. um, the reason that he was able to get it is because he was working on a long term project. But as far as actually getting the images from the military, being having access to where they come in, uh, this is something new. Right. Interesting. So the um, uh, also in this, in some way it's almost connected uh, <laughs> as far as releasing uh, or opening up uh, IP. Um, this has been there has been a big uh, challenge to the Creative Commons licenses. Um, now the Creative Commons license, of course, is put together by Larry Lessig, and on his blog he is uh, letting people know that or he he posted that um, uh, the, the uh, Creative Commons license has been upheld by the Federal Circuit. Um, I think this is for the first time. Now, Scott, you, you're not so sure about this? Well, I, I think it's typical blog stuff. You know, it turns into Creative Commons is the way to go for photographers now. Check this link. Mm-hmm. And it's just absolutely, totally wrong to say that. First of all, this isn't even a case about photography. And lawyers like to use uh, phrases like, this case is not on point or it has a different fact set. It would be a very long stretch to get this to apply to anything related to photography. Second of all, it's an appeals court decision that affects the federal circuit. In the Ninth Circuit, where we happen to live, it has absolutely no effect. So unless you live in a circuit, in the federal circuit... Well, uh, it does. I mean, because you know, once, once you start looking at... I mean, when, when any court in the in in uh, any court of appeals um uh, makes a ruling it's going to be considered by a by a well, yeah but it's but it's not binding is the point it's not, it's binding. not binding a lot of that stuff isn't but it but it, it does make it a would huge be binding difference. if it was done at the u.s supreme court it's binding it's if it not, does it there but i mean generally the, the, it makes it much more likely that another appeals court would would follow that ruling uh well if, i can i can show you lots of cases where that hasn't happened oh, happens that's all what, the time. well i mean the supreme court changes its mind as well that's so that's what i'm saying the u.s supreme court's main jo- job is to settle disputes between the circuit that's it will often take those kinds of cases and i think we'll see different decisions here but first of all once again different facts that it wasn't about creative commons per se and the real danger here is people would think that they can just rely on cc because of this ruling and not register their copyrights keep in mind that the the touchstone of what might be applicable here is that if the cc license uh is you know deemed to be invalid because somebody infringes then we go back to copyright protection but copyright protection without registration is virtually meaningless. So use CC if you want, but make sure you also register your copyrights. Well, but I think that if you do both, I don't think it, 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 the CC is kind of invalid at that point. You know what I mean? So if you, if you copyrighted it and did a CC, you would, you would probably – the CC wouldn't be valid at that point. And I think that people who are – I mean we 
uh, I use Creative Commons for a fair bit. I don't use it for everything that I do, but I use it for a fair bit of the content that we create. And and it's kind of like setting up, you know, for us, it's setting up a ser- series of rules. Um, I don't do it on stuff that, you know, I think for some people who really depend on that copyright, like that's what they're going to make money with. Um, I think that there is, um, I think that that makes a lot of sense to go ahead and copyright it. I think that, and I think. Well, for, instead of instead of you and I debating this, why don't we get a real lawyer on to have, I'll have him explain <laughs> let's, it. Let's bring, let's bring Larry Lessig on. So I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll get Larry. We'll let's get Larry bring, to come let's on. bring Larry Lessig on, and let's bring a well-known copyright attorney Perfect. on who, who's worked within the United States copyright protection. So we have a different so we'll, view. So that's we can a, explain so what, this. What we all. can do is that, that that'll be a future show. Aaron and, yeah. and I and uh, Scott will work on getting the guests in here, and uh, and we'll bring a couple lawyers in here, and we'll we'll talk. Uh, Creative Commons because I think it's I think it's important for you know on a variety of I don't think that copyrights shouldn't be used but I do think that uh, Creative Commons can be a valid uh, solution for some people who want to make it a little bit easier to use for us for instance with MacBreak and other things that we do and uh, it makes a lot of sense to let people trade it around and feel like they can trade it around and not feel like that there's any issue because that actually improves our our circulation yeah and and if that's your business model that's fine but if you're a photographer that spends two three hundred thousand dollars to go make an image at the Antarctic yeah 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 I mean I think that's clear I mean I think it's I think the people who are who are generally using creative commons are not professional photographers you know I mean they're 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 making it a little bit more easy to use but not uh, and I'm still waiting for somebody to show me one case with a fact set related to (laughs) photography specifically where any state court has upheld the Creative Commons as something that's got validity. I haven't seen it yet, and yeah. and I still haven't. I still don't believe I'll see it soon. Hey guys, I know we've talked quite a bit about this already, but for those that don't know, just quickly, what is Creative Commons exactly? Well, Alex, you can explain that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the Creative Commons is a. It's basically it's very similar to, or it is in the same vein as what's uh, a GPL. So it is a. Um, uh, it's a public license. The idea is is that you're saying that instead of all rights reserved, instead of saying that you have to talk to me to use it, I'm going to set up some rights reserved. I'm going to say that I'm going to set up a series of agreements that say I'm going to set conditions. Just like you, if someone, if you had a copyrighted something copyrighted, and someone asked you to use it, you might say, "Well, you can use my image, but here are the conditions that you can use it in." Instead of having them have to come to you directly, what Creative Commons is allowing you to do is is set it up globally and say. Anybody can use my 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 image, my media, my music, whatever that is, as long as they as long as they do these certain things. Um, so it might be, you know, with ours, you can't you need to attribute it to us. You can't edit it. You know, those are the things that we're that we say, like with MacBreak, for instance. But otherwise, you can give it to your friends. You can, you know, repost it. Those types of things. Those those things we allow. And and we have one of the more restrictive. Uh, Creative Commons licenses. There's multiple ones, but what you're doing is basically creating a global license for people who, you know. So you're saying, and, and what it says generally is, you know, Creative Commons some rights reserved. So you're not saying that it's in the it's in the public domain, but you are saying, and, and the concept that Larry's kind of put together here, or Lawrence Lessig, I should probably <laughs> say, is uh, is what he's done there is um, is said basically what we're doing is setting up the, by setting up those conditions. You know, you're basically if you break those conditions, if you don't do what the Creative Commons license says, you're basically breaking the uh, the, the the license. You're breaking um, the agreement that has been created, uh, and then it just go, it falls back to being you know you're breaking the copyright. It's as if you didn't have the rights. You're just an infringer at that point. So that's and, the, and let me jump in and show where the big difference is. Copyright is statutory protection. Creative Commons is not. 
Creative Commons relies on things like the common law and contract law, uh, whereas if you use, rely on copyrights, you have statutory codified protection, and that's the big difference. Well, and, I, and I think, as I said, I think that if, if it was my business to be selling stuff that needs to be, you know, and I need people to have agreements, uh, and it was my, if I was a professional photographer, I think I would definitely copyright stuff because this is still unproven. I think that the people that are making this available, like, like us, um, it, it are people who are experimenting with a new business model with stuff that they can afford to have turn one way or the other. You know, um, so I think that that's the, I mean, the stuff that I put out there, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm experimenting with it. I believe that that makes sense on a, on a lot of levels, um, for some of this content. And, um, uh, but I don't put the, st- the stuff that's really, really important. I'm still copywriting too. So I think it just depends on how, you know, what you're using it for. So let's move on to, um, the next step. Uh, we've got another, uh, um, another, uh, plugin for Aperture, free plugin for Aperture free. Uh, enables geotagging uh, to be processed and implemented within Aperture to streamline the process, and it links to Google Maps. Um, this is something I think is going to become more and more important. I think we're going to start with a, um, you know, this is going to be something I, people. It seems like a really interesting thing to do, like just kind of goofy. But geotagging think, is is really cool. And, yeah. and do you guys have a GPS in your car? I have it in my iPhone. Oh, in your iPhone? And they're amazing. I mean, they're just, they're, they nail it every time. And my understanding is you'll be able to, uh, and you can probably do it now, hook up your, a lot of these GPS devices for your car will allow you to have photos in them. And if the GP, uh, if they're geotagged, you can actually put the photo in and the car will take you to where the photo was taken. Oh, I haven't How even cool seen that. How cool is that? And and I can just sort of foresee, you know, these books and workshops where, you know, you can have a little photo tour. Photographer took these great pictures. He geotags the images and you download it to your Tom <laughs> and it will take you there and you can make those spectacular pictures too. Just be careful when you drive your car to the one that was taken at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just remember that there's a plus or minus of up to 30 to 50 <laughs> feet. You know, if you drive right up to the image, um, you know, the objects may be larger than they appear. Are it says to go 15 feet further. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> also, get this. Okay, this one I, I had to. I had to ask Aaron when he put it in there. I was like, "Is this real? Is this for real? We're not." Um, this is a touch sight camera for the blind. Displays photos using Braille. Wow. I, I just, it was like, I, I saw it and it's, it's in, in gadget. Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes, but it's designed to be held against the forehead and the camera doesn't have an LCD, but instead displays a three dimensional representation of the image on a built in Braille screen. Is it out now? Is um, it? No. No. no, no, it's it's just a concept right now, but oh, okay. it's uh, I mean it's a working model of it, I guess that 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 is, uh, but it it is a very interesting. You know, I'd be very interested to see what people take. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I've seen, and you guys probably have too. There have been uh, photographers who are visually impaired who use the autofocus technology and and actually are serious photographers and do really interesting work. You know, using sort of audio audio cues to to trigger the shutter, etc. Right. But this is taking it to a new level. Yeah, and I think well, I'm start, I'm starting to think I'm one of those visually impaired photographers. <laughs> the way my eyes work lately. <laughs> <laughs> you guys get older, you'll know what I'm talking Scott about. Be like, I, yeah, I got one of these little things for my D3 so that I could put it against my forehead and uh, <laughs> <laughs> takes great photos. <laughs> I get, I got, everybody laughs at me because in my bag I've got all this gear and then I've got a giant Mr. Magoo sized eyeglass. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I can also, read, read the, uh, the focus meter. <laughs> so now also in the pretty far out there uh, category, Catton, Catton, 
Catton Pannons, um, Cat <laughs> Cannon Pattons fuel cell DSLR. So this is a this is a recent Canon patent filing, and it and it looks like the fuel cells will power the entire camera system, including the flash. What's going on here this week? Is this George Jetson stakes up for talk? <laughs> I know we're just going. We are out out there so it's a it's a patent though so it's it, it's it, they're, they're working on it. it's probably it could be years away um but i you know it's funny i was sitting next to someone who was dealing with um uh, a lot of alternative fuels you know sitting on a plane and he said yeah pretty much everything that you have everything that you put in your pocket will be all f- fuel cell in the next you know five to ten years and uh i thought he was crazy and now i don't i don't know if he's so crazy so yeah. it'll be very interesting to uh well, i've heard of fuel cells for automobiles but i yeah. had not heard of them for cameras why? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, he, the, sure, the, Duracell and the Energizer Bunny are not maybe for it, but I think everyone else. Is. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll just be it'll be uh, power your camera, just add water. I don't know. You know, I had, I took a tour at MIT, and they're working on air powered batteries. Ooh, they oh. recharge based on exposure to oxygen. Well, that would be useful. Yeah, just yeah, like hang, they, hang your batteries outside your car and let them get a little fresh air and put them back in the camera. <laughs> but if they won't work in Los Angeles or Beijing, but not <laughs> that, it'll be great. <laughs> well, they charge about 60% in L.A. and about 40 in Beijing. Exactly. <laughs> so um, that, is, uh, that is the news uh, that, that we have so far. And, and we're going we're gonna to move the Audible pickup just a little bit this week. Of course, uh, audible.com is... Uh, is our uh, is our sponsor, and we're, we're very happy to have Audible. Of course, there's almost fifty thousand books that, that Audible has uh, available, and uh, and we and you know all of our uh, listeners can uh, you can get a free book if you want to go up to audiblepodcast.com/slash/twip. Make sure to uh, get your free book. It's a free downloadable book uh, that you can uh, grab there. And of course, Aaron is here, and he has a uh, pick for the week. Hey guys, this is my uh, my follow up pick from a couple of weeks ago. So I hope those of you that may have taken my advice on Ken Follett's Pills of the Earth uh, listen to it nine to five for a solid work week. Since it was forty hours, so you'd be ready for this week. Um, this one's actually a little longer. It's forty five hours and twenty three minutes. You're just taking everybody um, to town. I know, you know we're gonna have to start. We're gonna have, to have audible pick of the month if you keep on putting out those forty five hour books. It, it took me a month last time. I have to tell you, I mean, I, I over. Most of uh, December, I went through uh, World Without End last year. So, um, again, uh, like I said, it's kind of a follow-up to Pillars of the Earth. Um, those of you who have, may have read Pillars of the Earth years ago, it's been out for like 20 or more years, uh, certainly go straight to this one. And those of you that haven't heard either, um, you know, go back to my pick from a couple weeks ago and listen to Pillars. Uh, having said that, though, I will mention that it is not a sequel. It is not truly a sequel. Uh, those of you that are familiar with the storyline of Pillars will recognize a number of, you know, the lineage of some of the characters. There'll be some you know, some nice tie back in there and so on. But by no means do you have to hear one before you can hear the other. Uh, and you can listen to them in reverse if you like. No problem at all. Uh, but again, it does take place in the uh, somewhat fictional town of Kingsbridge, England. It's two centuries after the storyline of Pillars of the Earth. And I have to tell you, it is every bit as engrossing, if not more so, than Pillars. Uh, it's the same narrator who read Pillars of the Earth who does just a fantastic job. I mean, it is more of a, of a you know, almost a radio show production in terms of quality with his voicing. Um, but, you know, no sound effects or music or anything like that's used. It's just a really dynamic reader who does a tremendous job of being consistent with the voices so you know who the characters are. So, hands down, one of the best things I've listened to in the last year. Wow. And uh, it is a single uh, single credit pick if you're already a member, too. So, my, go my, for it. My question is, is, is it as good as the Spartans? <laughs> 
couldn't tell you I haven't been through the Spartans yet. Oh, I've heard, heard no, you mention I've, it I've been reminding you week after week after week, and you still <laughs> haven't listened to it. I'm, I'm hurt. I'm hurt. Well, I, w- I will tell you, though, that I'm, I'm into another book now, another audible book that's uh, it's a spy novel. I'm not going to name names yet. I've um, got to finish it first, but I am thoroughly enjoying what I'm listening to now, so that's definitely going to be a pick in a coming week. Excellent. Now, it, once again, if, it, if you like the spy novels, if you like the information, all of these things, uh, you, can, you can go up and get your free book from audiblepodcast.com slash twip. Uh, and uh, makes us look good too. So uh, you should go up there and download a book. So um, anyway, we've got a couple of rumors. We, we, we had to separate it from the news because we have no idea if this is true or not. Um, but there's a couple of things floating around in the, on the internets. And, uh, and uh, we thought we'd let you know just to keep your eye out. Um, first of all, the D, D90 uh, has been on an, sh- starting to show up on inventory screens um, in Circuit City and Best Buy. Uh, the uh, rumored price, this is a rumor, $12.99. Rumored features, 12 megapixel live view sensor, video capability, HDMI, and GPS. Do you guys think this is true? No. No? Okay. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> well, also, can I, just, can I just ask you guys, I mean, look, there, there are rumors all the time. We all love them. We, we're all kind of waiting for that perfect camera, camera bag thing to come out. Um, but, but are rumors really damaging to these manufacturers? I know they have the potential to be, but, but I think also they have the potential to really kind of drum up some excitement and anticipation. I mean, do you think that uh, you know, it's, it's always a bad thing for these rumors or these little leaks to come out? Ironically, I think that the, the as long as they don't, they don't hit all the time, I think it actually is good for them. I know Apple benefits a lot from a lot of rumors, um, but it's because you really don't know if it's ever it's going to turn out. Yeah, but I, you know, once again, age brings back history, and I was old enough when the uh, compact people made the mistake of letting a rumor go out about a new model that killed the existing sales on their right. first computer to the point that it almost took them out of business. Well, and, and, uh. and, and, and the main thing is because we have other rumors. Another rumor is that the G nine is running is is starting to show up as out of stock in some of the. Uh, uh, a lot of different areas, and uh, and and all of this is kind of pointing to the reason that these rumors are popping up. I think uh, the reason people are starting to pay attention to it is, of course, we're close to Photokina, and uh, Photokina. For those of you listening who haven't heard of it, it's probably the biggest biggest camera show in the world. Would you guys agree? It is oh, the yeah. biggest camera. Yeah, show in the world. yeah it's one hundred and sixty. It's only it's only every two years. It's so big. Yeah, so it's not yearly. It's every two years. It's kind of like a mini Olympics for photos. Now, it's. You know what? It's it's. I went a couple of years ago, actually four years ago now, and it was a lot of fun. But it is an Olympics just to actually go see everything there. <laughs> it's they call yeah, it the Photokina Marathon. Just to walk around, just to walk around is challenging. Of course, then you've got to deal with all that bratwurst and beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. And, and the beer part makes it hard for some folks to navigate. <laughs> 160,000 visitors. I mean, you remember, like... It's bigger than NAB. Yeah, NAB is about 100... It can get up to 110,000. 160,000 visitors from 140 countries uh, attend. And you can think of Macworld. Macworld, we pay a lot of attention to. That's a mere 45,000. So Yeah, this thing is huge. When I, I, haven't been, the- I haven't been in like 10 years, but I'll tell you, it was, it was, it was something to behold 10 years and, ago or whenever I went it- last. The thing about it is, you know, it's it's also for, you know, the dealers and the big customers. So they have, you know, special VIP sections, lavish sections with food and drink. But the average guy, photographers can't get in there. You got to buy yeah, a thousand right. cameras. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, and you the, have to you have to be a buyer for a big retailer. And of course, the reason, we're talking, the reason we're talking about this right now is because uh, 
one of the things that happens as you get close to PMA or you get close to, close to photokina is that you know you you expect that these camera companies are going to have big announcements that are near these events because that's going to give them the the uh, the thrust that they need the PR thrust that they need um, to go through these and so oftentimes uh, it's not the best time to grab a camera two months before you know a month or two months before or well a month I'd say before one of these because you just don't know what's going to get announced you don't know what's going to come out and you start seeing more of these rumors around uh, Photokina or PMA. Yeah, it's it's important not to buy a camera now. Yeah, this is this is the time. The, what what you want to do right now is you want to listen to us talk about <laughs> cameras. You want to think about what you need. You want to think about what you want, but you probably want to wait until after uh, September twenty eighth if you can if you can hold out. Um, September twenty third to September twenty eighth is um, Photokina, and uh, you probably want to see what people talk about at that point because we, we should mention here alex that uh, many times camera companies drop dates are further in the future than computer companies so just because it's announced at photokina doesn't mean it'll come right away so if you really need a camera now you can it. go ahead but but i will say it, it's best to know what's coming if you can wait till photokina at least it may be i mean i can remember you know, a couple of photokinos, photokinas back, well, several, you know, Nikon announced the 12 to 24 lens and it was two years before we were shipping. Right. We should, we should talk one of these days about digital buying strategies for those that don't have like endless money. I mean, there's an art to actually sort of buying a new camera and sort of keeping it, you know, and then being able to sell it used while you can still get some good money for it. I lose mine. I just keep them until they disappear. Yeah. Alex's strategy <laughs> is to get insurance on his cameras yeah, and then lose them on Southwest Airlines. Well, that's one strategy. That's one strategy. <laughs> but, but, but it's true. I mean, there are, I know there are a lot of people that are smart about it and they, they buy and sell at the right time. And they minimize their 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 loss, you know, professionals and advanced amateurs. I mean, no one wants to kind of throw out money when they don't have to. But we've seen cameras, you know, the value of used cameras when the D3 came out, you know, the D2X, uh, you know, dropped, you know, it just went like a... a like a rock to the bottom of the, uh, you know. Well, and I think that also there's a, you know, um, there are some cameras. If you if you happen to get one of those, what we would consider kind of a classic camera, and the, I think the G9, the Canon G9 is going to be one of those classic cameras that just, you know, they just they'll hang on to their value. I think a little bit longer. I think another one was, um, and a lot of times they're very distinct. You know, the uh, um, the Nikon 4500, which was kind of a weird looking little camera because you can you could turn it in the middle and it had this LCD and. But it, you know, you could up until only about a year or two ago, you could you would actually could sell it for almost the same price you bought it for. Alex, I have to say that only someone of your generation would be able to apply the word classic to any digital camera. <laughs> <thing. laughs> <laughs> Those you know, of us in know, my I'm generation, getting, are, I am getting are old enough like, now that I start hearing my favorite songs um, on the classic rock station. And it makes me yeah. Feel well, very old. Yeah, I hear mine on the oldies station, which you know. <laughs> see, when I think classic cameras, I think Nikon F five. or the the Nikon uh, F one for that matter. I don't think digital is classic. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, you know that that really is true. There are very very few you know in finger quotes classic digital cameras because as we know you know when the technology changes for the better even great cameras like the G nine will be kind of forgotten pretty quickly. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So the um, so make sure to just kind of hang on. We're probably going to see a bunch of announcements. We should have some exciting news uh, starting in a couple weeks, most likely uh, of one announcement after another because a lot of these camera companies will try to jump the gun 
And yeah, and we're and we're on the press list for all of them. So we'll be when we get the actual news, not the rumors. We'll pump it out both on the blog and on the show. Right. So um, on to the Flickr challenge now, Scott. You're extending by a week. Yeah, there's some there's some stuff going on. It's going to take just a second, so bear with me. Um, number one, the, the aspect of the of the 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 week the biweekly challenge. The point of coming up with this guys was to get people out shooting. But there's been sort of an unhealthy, uh, you know, migration towards paying more attention to the prizes than the shooting. So I'm going to try to nip that in the bud. So first of all, we're we're only going to reference the, this contest, if you want to call it a contest. It's more of a challenge. We're going to only talk about it on the show. We're not going to create a special place on the blog where people can come see the winners because it's not about the winners. It's about getting out and using your camera. So if you want to participate in our challenge and have a chance to win the prizes, you must listen to the podcast or check the show notes. That's number one. Number two, doesn't matter who we pick. Does not matter which image we pick. I get hundreds of emails going, oh, you should have picked this one. Oh, that one sucked. You should have got that one. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take it out of our hands to some degree and put it in the hands of our listeners. Over at Faux Trade, they've built, you know, really kind of just for us, but they're going to open it up to everybody, a photo contest engine. It's the first one I've ever seen on the web. We will have the contest move, not this week, but starting with the next challenge to Faux Trade. It's free to sign up. You don't have to pay anything. They're not going to try to sell you anything. You just sign up, get a free account, and then you upload your image, one image per per challenge and then the group will vote right and and then we'll cast our final votes and pick the winner and we're going to move it over there after this next one so we're extending this week to get that all set up and then every two weeks over at faux trade we'll have the new Flickr challenge and everybody will get to vote not just the the twip uh, you know cast everyone will get to vote and i think that'll be you know a little, little more democratic and democracy uh, at work say again yeah. democracy at work well, that, or I just don't want to deal with 200 whining emails, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, it, this way, you guys can be mad at yourself at who you pick. <laughs> but, but it's going to take us a couple of weeks to work that out. So go to, you know, go to the blog uh, one more week uh, over at Flickr. What we're going to do then is we're going to shut that down once we've got it working at Faux Trade, and the the Flickr challenge will be no more. It will become the, the TWIP challenge over at Faux Trade. You'll go over there. You put your image up for free. The group will vote, and then we'll you'll see who the winner is, sort of in real time, and uh, we'll award the prizes there. And I want to remind everybody: this is about shooting; it's not about winning. Yeah, it really is just so important to just find find something, find a context that you can go out and and uh, and shoot. And you just you know you really don't want to look at it as something you're trying to. You win by just doing it. You win by playing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. And it's really a, a lottery, isn't it, guys, to a certain extent? I mean, there's so many great yeah. images, and when one yeah. wins, it doesn't mean at all, as we've repeated many, many times, that that is the best picture. It just means that, for whatever that's, reason... It just means that's the one we like the best at that moment in time. Right. Exactly. So, now, we're not shutting down anything else on Flickr. There's 6,200 members, 3,200 in the, in the critique form. So, Those um, will continue to work. Yep. So, that's all, that's all fine, uh, fine and dandy. Just, just the challenge that we're moving. Uh, on to the uh, poll results here we've got um the uh we had a which focal length do you primarily shoot with super wide wide normal telephoto or super telephoto um and it was pretty evenly uh distributed between normal and telephoto okay what is normal what is normal 50 
Not not for me. <laughs> <laughs> What's normal I, yeah. for you, Steve? For me, normal is like 35. But no, I, I think that 50 is probably what everybody thinks normal is. Yeah, that's what most people would agree is. And yeah. and then telephoto could be as something like 100 for some people. Yeah, true. Um, but, you know, uh, super telephoto, that's us wildlife and sports photographers. Mm. I've been shooting. I've been shooting. I shot a lot at um, both Seagraph. Uh, I was in two conferences last week: Seagraph and uh, the New Media, New Media Expo. And I'll have to post. I'm going to post some of these images up on the Twit blog. Um, I, I, I took my instead of you know I bought this eight mil, this Sigma eight millimeter for my Canon, and, and instead of shooting panos with it, I just started just shooting with it, and uh, I had a lot of fun. It that was, falls into the super wide category. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. It's you know it's 180 degrees uh, horizontally and. Uh, and it's just there's something about it that I really like um, of just feeling like you're really in it, you know, because you can see the people that are standing it's, right next to you. It's fun. It's always yeah. fun to shoot with you. You got to watch your feet, though. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah or else so. everybody, yeah, exactly. Everyone will see them. I, I wonder, like, it sort of surprised me that there was such a high percentage of uh, normal uh, shooters out there just because I think most cameras these days come with the wide to telephoto zoom. So I, I would kind of suspect people would. Maybe they consider that normal. Them. Maybe they just considered 18 to 55 as normal. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe that was the. I still think a majority of cameras that are in, in play, Steve, came with a 50 millimeter lens. That's well, the still. The kit still, lens, though, is know, 18 to 55 on, on a well, camera. It's, what I'm saying is, you know, a couple years back, most cameras came with a 50. Oh right. yeah, and, of course. And, and and there's a larger majority of those installed than the newer cameras that have a wider uh, range to the kit lens. So that could have some influence. And also the fact that guys like Alex is constantly talking about his fifty one point eight. He's had some influence. And, <laughs> I, think, uh, I yeah. just think that people. I, I literally just think at the hospital they just hand you a little rebel or a or a forty X <laughs> with a fifty with a fast fifty and just say, okay, you need to take pictures of your kids with this. Um, I mean, I do think it's remarkable that Alex with about, I don't know, 750 bucks, is that what you kind of had wrapped up about yeah. there, Alex? With about $750 worth of gear, Alex took photographs that were as good as any I've ever seen from anybody. Oh, thank you. Wow. wow. You know, of his kid. Now, of course, it was the fact that his child, no doubt, motivated him to have some special connection yeah. and all kinds of other factors. But, I mean, the gear became very secondary to to this. And with a, you know, like a fairly inexpensive kit, he made wonderful photos. So I still, that, that could have something to do with it. But I, you know, I was kind of bummed that only 2.7 of us were up there at the super telephoto area. There, I was, <laughs> I was rooting for my gang. You know why, Scott, they're all in China right now. Okay. Exactly. And, and, you know, Aaron mentioned to me earlier, did you notice that, uh, you know, the last Olympics, I think there were a lot of white lenses. Now it's kind of like About half 50, 50. Half. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The black Things Nikon lenses with the D3s in play, it's about half to, but they all have to wear that stupid Kodak vest, which I wondered to myself, okay, you know, this is like Kodak? Come Def- on. They're, they're, you just don't think of I sense, Kodak anymore. When I you sense think a little of, desperation there. Like, we're still, yeah. we're still relevant. In, in and, I mean, the people, and I know a couple of the guys there, and they, they did everything they could to get out of it, but it's like, you're not wearing the vest, you don't get in the venue. Right. Yeah, yeah no, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Um, the, uh, now we have the new poll is, uh, if you make, if I think if is important, if you make your own photo prints, uh, what brand of printer do you use? And so we've, uh, I think we've listed most of the options here. Lexmark, uh, brother, Polaroid, HP, Canon, Sonin, Sony, Kodak, Iris, and Epson or other. Yeah. Mostly it's Epson, HP, and Canon as you would expect uh, in the early results. I, I didn't see LCD. 
(laughs) That's where I print most of my photos. Well, I I didn't list you there because you have a 1946 Model T printer in your office, Alex. (laughs) Alex has got the most state-of-the-art office on the planet, except for when it comes to printer. There's a thing over there with cobwebs. You know, here's the worst part is that when I want to print, when I want to print stuff out, I just send it. I, I literally just send it to the Apple print service and I just go print that print that and i don't want to i don't want to deal with it i don't want to buy it he prints you know, stuff out and then it's faxed back to him no i just i just mailed like <laughs> my, my grandmother kept on saying when are we going to get some, when am i going to get see some photos and so i just went up to my i went up in, and i just went to the little print postcard and i printed one and had it sent to her and it was it was great and then she sent me this big letter she was so excited to get it and i didn't have to touch anything it was Ooh, awesome that's nice i, I so it you was a you can keep your dot matrix printer then. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. My dot yeah. matrix is going to be great. And, you know, I have one that's just printing with periods and oh. it, it, it works pretty well. Anyway, so uh, now on to the meat, the meat of the subject here, um, wildlife photography. And we have one of the world experts in wildlife photography, Scott Bourne. Scott, how do you get started in this? Uh, you have to have an interest in animals, obviously. You have to be, you have not, to be kind of fascinated by your subject or else it's pretty tough to justify standing in a blind for eight hours hoping for a glimpse of a mountain lion. Yes. Patience. So patience would patience. be one of the number one skills. And desire. You have to have a lot of desire. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, does, it's, it's, it takes a, it's unlike a lot of photography. You know, we could, we could grab a camera and meet it fourth in market and walk around San Francisco and find something to shoot. But if you say, you know, I'm going out looking for mountain lions, bears, or wolves, you, you know, there's some effort involved. Well, and part of it is also you have to, A, be, go out in a way that is not going to disturb the wildlife, right? That's correct. And also go out you in a way that— don't, You don't want to disturb a 1,500-pound grizzly ever. <laughs> yeah, and—, and uh, <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. And uh, that was what I was going to say next is you got to make sure that not only do they, you, you get close enough to shoot them, but not so close that they um, come and get you. Well, yeah, and that comes from, you, you know, most wildlife photographers spend a lot of time studying wildlife biology and, and understanding how animals behave. It, it's, it's just like a sports photographer knows that if there's a guy on first, he better point his camera lens at second base so he can get the tag on the steal. Uh, you know, wildlife photographers learn things like if you want to get an eagle in flight, wait till he lifts his wings and poops because then he's going to take off. <laughs> so that means that means that every oh, okay, it was like all the, that, that's the beginning of every photo that we've seen of uh, of those birds. Well, not every time, but it's usually good. I mean, birds have to really deal very carefully with weight. And so, you know, they want to get as light as they can before they take off because they got to carry that. When this they, ruins they my vision of, of all these majestic photos and realized it was just the other <laughs> side of a, of, you know, anyway. It was just so the other side of a, of a defecation move. <laughs> <laughs> now, what kind of gear do you really have to have that is distinct from your normal photography environment? Super telephoto lenses is the number one thing. Okay. I mean, you know, obviously there's the occasional shot. You get lucky. You can make with a short lens. But, you know, unless you want to put your life at risk and or, more importantly, disturb the wildlife by getting into their space, which can cause all kinds of problems for them as well, you know, you need a long lens. We're I, talking 400 millimeters and up. I once shot a... Um, and you also, for me, I, I found that you want to make sure you're not always looking through the camera. Yeah, <laughs> you could, I, I, I had an eight. I had a wide angle lens on, and I shot a picture of. I was taking pictures. Well, it was, it was like a you know, it's like an eighteen to fifty five, but it was kind of opened up. And I started walking closer, and I, I took a shot of a baboon, um, not realizing how close I, I was to the baboons you know, can be mean. Um, they can be deadly, and yeah. uh, I definitely shouldn't. I've, I have some great pictures of a male baboon showing me teeth. 
Yeah. <laughs> and th- that's uh, a good reason to have a telephoto. Uh, yeah. What else? What else do you need for gear? Um, you know, if you're going to use a really big lens, usually you need to put it on a tripod. So you need a heavy tripod. And what most of us that do a lot of wildlife work use is a gimbal head. This is a special kind of head that you use to mount your camera and lens to the tripod. Instead of using the standard little ball head, you use a much sturdier gimbal head that sort of makes it like a machine gun turret. So you can just very easily, with the little finger, you can move side to side, up and down. Unfortunately, these are expensive. They run four or 500 bucks just for the head alone. Right. But you really need something like that if you're going to spend all day because you're not going to handhold a 600 millimeter uh, lens for very long. And I'm surprised, you know, you really have to, you know, I thought I could get a cheaper, I, I put up kind of a heavier rig, which would be kind of similar. I was doing a quick time VR and, you know, it's, it's amazing how quickly throwing a heavier rig onto a smaller tripod will have it start leaning one way or the other in enough, in, in enough of a direction that's a problem. So yeah. it's definitely yeah, something. I, I, to- I'm using Gitzo carbon fiber tripods. I'm using Wimberly, uh, you know, gimbal heads. I'm using Arca Swiss style mounting plates that cost. They cost some money, but you need this to all be sturdy because, you know, in my case, with just the two to four hundred uh, Nikkor lens on the D three, that's ten thousand bucks. So you don't want that hitting the ground, right? Now, yeah. when you're out there, go ahead, go ahead, Steve. Oh, I was just going to ask you, Scott, because I, I would think that, you know, well, I, I'm pretty sure that the same things apply to great wildlife photography as to many areas of photography: the light, the moment, uh, etc. But um, um, I would suspect, too, and maybe you can talk a bit about this, in terms of success when you're out there shooting, I mean, you can spend so much time, but if you got maybe like one or two spectacular images, would that be satisfying to you or do you have kind of a higher uh, expectation when you're in the field? Well, yeah, I mean, if I get one publishable shot, you know, of something in the wild, truly in the wild, that that's good. You know, obviously, some of these expeditions, Steve, cost a lot of money to mount, so you hope to do better. But, you know, it's it, there's no script. You can't you can't order up perfect light and perfect weather and perfect conditions. And sometimes you'll go to a place. I had this happen to me where I've been photographing eagles up here in western Washington. Uh, near a, there's a town called Welcome, Washington, and it's off the Nooksack River. And there's twenty thirty bald eagles there every January, like clockwork for 10 years. I took a group up there one year after that, and there wasn't no eagles to be found. You know, so you can do something over and over and get success and then find out later you don't. So it, it is a bit of a hit or miss. And, you know, if you work on controlled conditions, like in zoos, for instance, or at game farms, then you can get a much higher uh, keeper ratio. Although just because it's under controlled conditions, you're still dealing with a, a live uh, creature, so there's, you know, it's it's somewhat unpredictable what right. kind of success you'll have. But, you know, I'm about to go to Alaska in a couple of weeks, probably for one of the most, you know, ambitious expeditions of my career. And uh, we've done everything we can research-wise for two years to plan it. And even then, you know, we get up there, we're not sure what we're going to find. Mm. Do you think, Scott, like if you look back at your career and what you've shot already in your your wildlife uh, photography, are there certain images that come to mind as being kind of favorites uh, of yours? Is there a few that or, or situations that uh, stand out? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, the f- one of my favorite places in the world is called Bosque del Apache. It's a national wildlife refuge in central New Mexico. And uh, it, it's just an amazing place because every January, excuse me, every November through January, around Thanksgiving is when I usually go. 
sometimes Thanksgiving Day is the best day, there'll be two, three hundred thousand snow geese and Ross's geese from Canada. You have to have a oh. Canada reference in every show. Uh, they, come, they come down there and migrate, and they'll sit out on these lakes overnight, and they sleep there because that way they are protected against intrusion by coyotes who try to take them during the night, and they can hear the splashing so they can get away. And then in the morning, there's this magical thing that happens, Steve, where as if somebody gave them a cue, it goes from still calm to <clears throat> and 200,000 birds take off at once. And I've Whoa. done it. For, I've done it for 20 years, and every time I get goosebumps, even though I know exactly what's going to happen. How uh, much time f- do you have to shoot that, Scott? When that's happening, yeah, it's 30 seconds. Ah, and it's it's over. Okay. They they take off, and it's just like boom. It's just it's all gone. And then you're like, whoa, got to get up again in the morning, try it again. So you spend eight, ten, twelve days there. I've spent whole months there at a time, trying to get the best one of those. And I got a shot that uh, Art Wolf actually selected as as a winner for w- one of his. Uh, you know, big wildlife photo contest, and it was up here in Seattle, and they did a big show around it. And it's one of my best-selling images. It's called the Flyout, and uh, many of the people have seen it. It's it's pretty pretty fantastic shot. Even if I did do say so myself, it was <laughs> luck, a lot of luck, because I just happened to be in the right place. But uh, you know, that's the more that's the more you my, shoot, the luckier you get, right? Yeah. Right. That's that's one of my personal favorites, what? though. Thanks for asking because I love to talk about that picture. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that I think one of the things that uh, you know, it's almost I was talking to somebody or I was talking to a couple of a hundred people actually about equipment for video, but it, I think it applies a lot to this as well uh, uh, to um, photography, which is that you know the reason you start buying a lot of this expensive equipment. I know a lot of people hear us talking about this stuff. But there's, you know, there is a opportunity law, opportunity cost if your if your stuff isn't working perfectly, right? And so we we end up spending a lot of money on lenses and cameras and backups and all kinds of other things because you know the cost isn't. I mean, there's a lot of cost um, to buying the camera, but it's a lot more expensive than losing 13 days because something went bad or losing six three days or or a day or that shot um, because the camera wasn't you know doing what it needed to do. And I think that's one of the reasons we end up spending so much money on equipment is because this is something that we don't when we get there, we, oftentimes we're shooting, whether it's people or, or animals, uh, shooting in environments where, you know, you're going to get one shot. And yeah, we're going yeah. up to Geographic Harbor uh, inside Katmai National Park. And it's way north of where most people go to photograph the bears. So that most people, most of the bear shots you see from Katmai are taken from what's called bear platforms, where basically it's almost like a zoo. The bear's the same bear in every picture, the same background. It's taken from the same angle. The ranger stands over. You get 20 minutes, and you're elbow to elbow with guys with point-and-shoots. We're not doing that. We're going on three airplanes. Two of them are float planes and a boat. It's going to take a couple of days' travel to get where we're going, and we're going to photograph 35 coastal brown bear, Kodiak brown bears they're subspecies of grizzly and there'll be nothing but 50 feet of air between us and these bears which are the largest bears in the world so you really don't want to get up there and go oh i forgot my battery <laughs> you know? wow wow i mean well, you, you spend ma- two days getting there you do not want to go there and find out you didn't you know didn't bring enough gear right you you, you mentioned desire and passion and that's obvious in in you know doing this kind of work i mean there's a lot involved both expense and time and and all that so obviously you have to have that have you guys seen the national geographic photographers video because if there's any idea that you know wildlife photography can be glamorous and i suppose there are times when it might be but there's a a a little scene of nick nichols in the middle of the jungle 
basically being swarmed by 10 zillion mosquitoes, wiping oh, yeah. the mosquitoes off his face and his camera, trying to shoot. And, yeah. and, and man, I mean, you know, this is the kind of price you have to pay sometimes to get the spectacular images. Well, I, I just inject myself with DEET, number one. So <laughs> I, uh, Garlic I, for I, two weeks, a little bit of I, DEET. I, also, if you go to Alaska and you don't have a mosquito net, you're just dumb. I mean, you know, it's it's we we wear mosquito nets and we. I mean, yeah, you stand there and it's it's not pleasant. Uh, in my case, I'm going to be sitting because I've been dealing with a couple of medical issues. But I'm going. I'm not going to pass on this trip. I've spent too much money and too much time planning for it. But I've got me a little travel chair. I'm gonna. I can actually fit in my camera pack and sit down on and. Um, you know, everyone wants me to go on this trip. There's a, there's a bunch of people going with me, crew, support crew. And uh, my mentor, Artie uh, Morris, who's the world's finest uh, bird photographer but also likes to shoot bears, he's he's going with me. And they, I think they all just want me along because they figure I'll be the slowest moving one in case the bears decide to attack. <laughs> no, no. But, no, when you're, when you're up there, what do you, how do you think about your composition technique? So what do, what do you um, – like when you're, when you're starting to – Go up there. Is there a certain way that you like to frame it? I mean, you're capturing a lot of stuff, but is there are there some rules that you try to follow? Well, for me, it's a style thing, Alex. I like to really shoot tight. I like to have tight close-up portraits of the face of the animal because I treat wildlife photography the way I te- treat people photography. It's all about the eyes. So I come in a little tighter than many photographers, which means I get a little closer and I get a little crazier, but it's worth it because I like a really tight shot. But some of the basics are like if you're, if you're photographing bears running across the scene, you don't want to photograph them running out of the scene. Many of the same rules of composition we'd use for anything. You want to give them some room. Uh, you want to use the rule of thirds. Um, you you want to use uh, foreground objects if you can when you're doing wildlife. It's particularly important because you want to do something that shows scale. We're going to be photographing bears that are 12 to 14 feet tall on their hind legs. It's going to be impossible for anybody to know that unless I can find something to put in the foreground right. uh, for scale. Now, in this case, I'll, I'll be relying mostly on the salmon. We're going during the salmon chum. So the bears will have salmon in their mouth. Most people have an idea of the size of a salmon. So that will help establish how big that freaking bear head is that's around the salmon. <laughs> right. But you want something for scale in your composition when you're doing wildlife photography. It's particularly important. Now, and then, of course, but- backgrounds. Backgrounds are the most important thing. That's another one of my signatures. I look for the plainest background I can get. I want a blue sky or a simple stone wall or a green grass. And I, I shoot you know, wide open at F4 uh, on the big lenses. They run to F4. And I want to I just you know, background, background, background. I actually – what I do is I find the background I want and I wait for the animal to come through it. I don't find the animal first. I find the background first because for me, if I don't have the right background, I won't take the shot. Well, yeah, if it's too no, busy, you lose it, right? You, like anything yeah. else. Yeah. You know, coming coming from a documentary perspective, Scott, I, I I have total respect for what you're doing on this grizzly trip because you brought something up earlier that maybe not a lot of uh, our viewers uh, uh, know about, and that is, you know, sometimes you have images of wildlife that is representative of, of you know the wild you know, tiger or the wild bear, but as you mentioned, they're actually shot sort of in controlled conditions, almost in a a zoo-like situation, and then there are photographers like yourself who go out into the wild and capture, uh, you know, the animals in their natural habitats, and, you know, hopefully the images, I think, will uh, convey 
the reality of what you're photographing. But, you know, they don't always do that, do they? Well, I, I've shot both ways. I have nothing against shooting in controlled conditions, depending on what you're shooting for. If you need a picture of a mountain lion cub with a mother and you need it for a book and they need it to illustrate to young school kids how that works, the only way you're going to get that shot is under controlled conditions. I have no problem with it. Um, if it's for fine art, I have no problem with it. But if it's for documentary purposes, then I think you do need it, it, it. You need to disclose one way or the other. So I mean, I have a book of of wildlife photography. I shot it in controlled conditions, and I explain it on the first page, mm-hmm. and and that I shot it that way. And I'm working on a book now of images that were shot in the wild. So it, it's you you know it's everybody has their own ethics. I don't care how you do it. I do think that there are certain times when you need to disclose it. In this case, it'll be pretty obvious to folks that we're not under controlled conditions because they'll look at the backgrounds and go, "That's there ain't, ain't no zoo." <laughs> that's Mount McKinley in the background. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Now, where do you sell these ones once you get them? Once you've shot them, I I depends. I break them down into groups, Alex. I sell some of them as stock. The ones that are kind of I look. I, I have three categories of images from these trips: real super winners, which I will sell as fine art. Um, documentary stuff, which I tend to sell a lot of to uh, textbooks, school books, you know, things like that. And then more pedestrian images of wildlife, I sell as stock. Got it. And and uh, is, it, is, it, is it something that people can really turn into a living if this is the thing that they're most excited about? Well, yeah, but um, yeah, be it's like anything else in photography. I mean, it depends on what you call a living. There's probably a couple dozen of us that have made six figures at this. Right. Right. I mean, it, it's it's easy to make twenty five grand a year doing it. <laughs> right. So, and and, and, and that you, can be you know, good if, you, if you're out there shooting you, in Africa. You can live pretty well for twenty five thousand a year. Yeah, right? it depends on where you live. And you know, most people that do wildlife photography, I meet a lot of dentists. Let's put it like that. Right. I meet right. a lot of dentists because they have high disposable income. And right. uh, you know, a lot of the times in the last few years, I've gone out teaching these these things. So that's been my. You know, I haven't been trying to sell the images as much as I've been trying to teach people, and I don't shoot as much. I show them what to do, and I run into a lot of people in the workshops. You know, they have to have some money because it takes ten, twenty thousand dollars worth of gear, and ten, twenty thousand dollars worth of workshop fees, and five, ten thousand dollars worth of travel. Sometimes you got to make a big commitment to get these pictures, and and some people sell them quite well locally at various art fairs, etc. But Believe me, in photography, there are much easier ways to make a living than as a wildlife photographer. Right. I'd be I, I'd be a wedding or portrait photographer in a heartbeat before I'd be a wildlife photographer if I wanted to just look at the money side. Right. Well, very good. Uh, are there some good places for people to go to uh, do more research in this area? Well, I, I, you know, I have a book I wrote called 88 Secrets to Wildlife Photography, I think is a good start. That might be a good other, one. Uh, they, can, they can go check that than, out. Other than my book, you know, here's a great thing to do. If you want to get started on this, you don't need a lot of gear. Go to your local zoo. You can shoot with a 200 a lot of the times there. And it's a great place to get some practice. And then look at national parks and national wildlife refuges. There, We're very lucky here in the United States. We Most people that, that travel the world are, remark that this is the only place they've ever been like this. I mean, anybody that lives near Albuquerque can drive an hour and 20 minutes and be in the middle of the wildlife refuge there at Bosque. And it's just it's, – it's like seven bucks to get in for the whole week and – You've got more wildlife. You've got coyotes. You've got eagles. You've got 
right. hundreds of species of birds right there next to you. There are places to go, but wildlife refuges are a good place to start, national parks and zoos. Get some practice with it. See if it's something you really like, and then you know you can do research and, and, and on online and find other uh, places to go. Then save up and take a workshop is usually the next step and get some experience in the field working with guys that know what they're doing. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you very much, Scott. Sure. I, I'm glad we were to able to tap Scott. It's weird to be interviewed on my own show, but it was kind of fun. <laughs> I know, but it was just, you know, it, it, we had to tap into it. We had this, can, this, this can depth of knowledge we weren't using. No, we should, we should talk to, you know, we'll, we'll pull Steve we should, on. Talk we about should interview each other at, like, at some point in time. Everybody should be interviewed. I think the audience would appreciate that. I can talk about taking pictures of babies. Yeah, and I think it's just I think it's because you know we many we assume everybody knows what we're into, but maybe right. they don't. Yeah, no, definitely. That that sounds perfect. Also, now we're gonna jump. We're gonna change gears, and we're gonna get Scott to talk a little bit more about the site of the week. Well, my pick is not a direct photography pick this week, but it leads to a lot of photography picks. I, I like blog lines as my RSS reader. Okay. And. And uh, using blog lines, I keep track of 20 or 30 photography-related blogs. Mm -hmm. And you can go to blog lines and you can search through their archives of RSS feeds to find some. Of course, all top where we happen to be listed is a great place to get some photography blogs as well. I just think it's a really good uh, RSS reader and and I wanted to kind of change the mold a little bit this week and, and mention that. Perfect. So check that out. We'll have a link in the show notes, and of course. it's free. It's free. So it's, uh, it's zero Alex. <laughs> exactly. So, so hey guys, uh, I maybe just wanted to add because I don't think everybody in our audience really knows exactly what the RSS uh, feed is and, and how it works. Could you just maybe in just a sentence or two d- describe how that is? Sure. Scott, do you want to tell me? Yeah, it stands for really simple syndication. And it, it basically is a kind of subscription that's free where you get information delivered to your computer as it's updated and you have complete control. It's not like an email subscription where you have to hope somebody unsubscribes you if you're not interested. You use a reader like Bloglines and there are others out there and you find sites you like and you just say subscribe to this site and then – Boom, as you go to the reader, all the new feeds will come down to you automatically. So instead of like bookmarking, which is what I used to do in the old days, bookmarking 100 sites I like to check on, I just bookmark blog lines. And then I go there and all my feeds are updated on a regular basis. And for example, uh, twipphoto.com, our blog, we have an RSS feed. You subscribe subscribe to it's in the top right corner on the page and using something like blog lines and every time we make a post which happens to be at least once a day you'll have it delivered right to your computer you don't have to go looking for it so that's that's the beauty of rss great great thanks so now we have we have a couple questions here that we'll get to um we have uh uh, the first one is uh, and this is kind of related to taking some photos here uh we have um this is from jack sweats and uh he uh, he's shooting in Tanzania, so he says he has got a question regarding model releases from third world or developing or emerging countries, depending on what you want to call it. Uh, he says I have an opportunity to teach photography classes in uh, for a nonprofit in Tanzania. While um, while there, I would like to pho- photograph the people of Tanzania. If I want to sell those as stock, would I need a model release? And if so, does the U.S. based model release hold any water? Um, so, uh, Steve, I think the best person to answer this is you. Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, the the quick answer is is yes, particularly with stock. The thing about stock is, you know, you never know how an image is going to be used. And frankly, uh, anyone that is interested in purchasing a stock image 
wants to have it model release so that they're kind of off the hook in terms of uh, if there is any kind of litigation that comes afterwards. But the whole ethical thing, too, um, you know, as a documentary photographer, for the most part, I, I don't deal with uh, model releases. I, I rarely use them, but I'm more intimate with my subject matter, and I know who they are, and I, whenever possible, you know, take down the information and, and uh uh, we'll let them know even if, if something's going to be used, if, if I think they're going to be interested in it. But, you know, with the volume of stuff that we, we do, um, it's impossible to do that with, with everyone. So having a model release is always a good idea. Having uh, kind of a simple uh, U.S.-based model release, I think, will work. I don't know if there's anything. Um, I think there probably is something maybe uh, that would be... I, I don't know. Maybe Scott knows about an international version of a model release that would be better. But uh, it's always better to have it if you're not sure of how you're going to use the images and you and you want to sell them in the future. Yeah, I, I'd say you know what, just have it printed in the local language and you'll be safe. Yeah, and if and, and depends on like in Tanzania, English is one of the um, standard languages. Yeah, you're good so, to go. So you can you know it's it is a uh, um, so you should be able to just print it in English, and if you know what stock company you're going to work with, um, oftentimes they're going to supply the one that they want to see. And, right. and I think they're going to usually be pretty sensitive if, if they get something that's very much different. It has to go through legal. And yeah. uh, so, I think the only, the only reason why you wouldn't have or why people take chances with, with model releases overseas is they don't expect you know, the subject to necessarily ever find it. So in a way, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit deceiving uh, to have that attitude. Uh, it's really the same situation wherever you go in terms of getting the permission of the people and having them, you know, kind of know what, what you're doing with the, with the photography. One thing I'll well, have Trust to... me, if it becomes really famous, they'll find you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, the, the, um, uh, one of the things that... Uh, as far as when you're when you're doing that, the other side of this, uh, I I oftentimes I'm I'm now moving on to kind of a digital printer, but a lot of times when I've gone into villages, I've taken a Polaroid camera with me, and mm. um, and I take a picture of someone with my digital camera, and then I would immediately take a picture of my with my Polaroid camera, and give them the photo. Uh, the thing to remember is when you're in a small village uh, in the middle of nowhere, they you know the photo that you hand them may be the only photo they have of their family, you know, yeah. or of them. Um, so, and you won't get away with doing it just once either, will you, Alex? No. The one That's... thing you have to be very careful about is having a lot of Polaroids. You know, I, uh, we were halfway between um, a place called Tanganenga and, uh, and Harare, Zimbabwe, and uh, we stopped to pick up some petrol. And while we were filling up, I wandered into the village and started taking photos and uh, was taking them with the Polaroid as well as, well as my camera. And First, the kids were excited, and then I could see people coming down from coming, you know, coming down from the a variety of huts and and houses, and and uh, the thing that I noticed is I suddenly realized how big of a deal it was when I could see the women coming down, kind of primping up their hair and getting oh, themselves boy. ready to go, and and realizing, holy smokes, I'm taking you know this is like a big opportunity that they're taking advantage of because there was no electricity, there was no you know it was a very isolated location, and uh, uh, and so I mean we we bought our petrol with a we got a duck thrown in, you know, to kind of give you a meal. A live duck came came <laughs> oh. with it, and uh, you know they they were talking and showing us. So I had no idea what they were saying. There was a lot of going back and forth, and the next thing we knew, we had fifty liters of petrol and a duck, and um, <laughs> which, which we ate that night. So um, the uh, anyway, but the point is, is that that it really made me clear that when I was out there, that I needed to have some way of you know giving back something that I was ta- you know from the from what I was taking and. Uh, 
Uh, and so what I did is I started, you know, I, I made sure that I, you know, I ran out at that point and I got almost through almost all the photos, which is even worse than not doing any or having one is not, is getting like 48 photos when you need 50. And, um, mm. and, uh, but now what I've, what I'm doing on this next trip, which I'm not going to get out into the rural area very much, but I'm going to be taking a, a digital, like one of those little, I think it's going to be a little Epson digital printer that'll be, that can power to the car that I can just print, yeah. print the actual photos that I took. So, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I, I'm planning on doing that, too. But, you know, it, it's it's and we've talked on the show a little bit about it, too, is, you know, when you're in places where they don't necessarily see photographers all that often. And once the cat is out of the bag about the digital display on the back of your camera, <laughs> and they know yes. it. I mean, you can't work anymore because you <laughs> know, they're gonna see the other side. everyone. Yeah, I'm taking a. I'm taking one of those little Epson photo printers to Alaska in case the bears want copies there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I really exactly. don't want to make them angry. A good idea. Yeah, no. I, uh, when we were taking video, we turned the LCD inside out so they could see what we were shooting, and it was yeah, pandemonium. Cool. Pandemonium. You know, so yeah. uh, so it's it's a lot. Of, it, it is a very. It's a lot of fun if you uh, make it a collaborative process. So. Um, so good luck. Uh, hopefully you enjoy your, your shoot in Tanzania. One more question here. We've got one from Matthew Ballard. And uh, he said, I think this is a really good question. He said, should one sharpen before or after the JPEG creation for print output? Scott, do you want to jump in there? Before or after the So what JPEG. he has is he's got an image. It's probably a TIFF or a RAW or whatever, and he's right. working on it. And, he's, and he's, what he's curious about is should, we, he, he, should, should he apply the sharpening before or after he makes it a JPEG before he sends it out for print? Well, my personal opinion is you should sharpen for output. And you're, you know, if you're going to make a JPEG, chances are you're not going to print it. You, you know, most people use JPEGs for screen. They use TIFFs or PSDs uh, you know, for print. But in my experience, the, the best workflow I've ever found is sharpen on export, which is one of the reasons I happen to like Aperture because it does that for you on export. Uh, it sharpens the image on export only. And right. um, you, can, you, you need to think about this because if you're going to print an image 30 by 40 and put it on the wall, you need a completely different sharpening workflow than you do if you're going to make an image 600 pixels wide for a website. So if you sharpen and then try to do multiple output – you're going to find that the results are uh, iffy at best. So my experience is whether it's a JPEG or not, you want to sharpen for output. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, yeah I think, I think – go, go, ahead, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that uh, you know, a JPEG, of course, is a, a lossy uh, compression. So every time you open and close it, you're losing a few pixels. So you know, just purely on the theory, it sort of makes sense to sharpen before exporting to, to JPEG in this instance. And I suspect you know, he's, he's making it a JPEG for a reason. Maybe that's where his service bureau will only – allow it but uh right. well, or, or, you or, or, not even it might be a service bureau but yeah like if you upload it upload your file to a, a variety of services i think online i think it has to be a jpeg um yeah. you know that you're putting yeah. it up and I, and I think it's it's very important in my opinion to not sharpen after you've turned it into a jpeg unless you took it that way um and the reason is is that you have a lot of um what's happening is is the jpeg's kind of clumping everything together you know, it's clump, it's clumping colors together. Even if you have it at very high, it's 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 making it's making a couple assumptions. Now, most of the time when you print it, you're not going to see those. But if you start to sharpen, what happens is is you you know the JPEG in some ways is perceptual. It's doing what it thinks you're not going to notice or what not is not going to show up. If you start to sharpen it, you're changing the rules, and you can bring out the artifacts um, very, very quickly. Uh, just like you, you can bring out grain if you sharpen with it with too small of a radius, 
you can bring out the um, the artifact within the JPEG uh, later, and so it, uh, it's very important. I think you know if, if you've got it. Uh, in raw, I think all of us agree. If you've got it in a raw format or a TIFF format or whatever, you want to keep it there until the very end. Mm. The uh, um, so now next coming up next week, by the way, and we if everything goes well, it's dangerous for us to say this, but uh, we've got a we've got um, David Griffin, who's the director of photography for National Geographic, and uh, we're going to be interviewing him for next week's show. Um, I think it's going to be a fascinating. Uh, discussion with uh, with David, so we're very excited about that. So uh, stay tuned for that next week. Um, does anyone have a tip for the week? Tip? I can give one if nobody else has one. Fire away, Scott. <laughs> okay. Uh, my tip is really simple, but if you're new at photography, you will you will be glad to hear this. If you're used to it, you go, I knew that, but you know, you get to have to listen to it anyway. Uh, if you're using Flash. And we know Alex doesn't use Flash, and Scott doesn't use Flash. Scott doesn't use it much anymore because he's got the D3 and can shoot up to ISO 6400 like it was 400. Um, But if you're going to use Flash, don't leave it on the camera. Buy the little cord or a wireless device that lets you take it off the camera and move it away from the top of the camera. If you do that, you won't get red eye. You'll get a much more you know, pleasing result, just get it up a little bit into the right or the left of the camera and you will get dramatically better results. And for as little as 30 bucks, you can get a cord for almost any camera that will attach. It's called an off shoe cord. It will attach to the flash and the camera shoe and let you move that flash away from that dead center spot right over the lens, which is what causes red eye and which is what causes bad, ugly shadows behind the subject, and you'll find way, way better results. That's my tip. And you're That's using Flash one. for what, Alex? Flash? Oh, no, I thought, I thought you know, when, when I said I was going to – when, when you were talking about it, I thought that you were talking about Flash, the software, not Flash. The oh, flash. quit it. Oh. <laughs> I, I actually don't use a Flash at all. All right, that's more like it. That's the Alex I know and love. <laughs> <laughs> Although I wish I had one, I have to admit, I was shooting at a dinner and it was very dark, and I was like, I either need a flash or I need a D three. Yep. And I no, I might have to go buy one, one or the other. So uh, anyway, so that's uh, that's it. So um, Scott, where can people get more information about you? Um, about the things on the you Twitter, do? it's on the Twitter, it's Scott Bourne or scottborn dot com is my slash Tumblr blog thingy, whatever. Excellent, and Steve. SteveSimonPhoto.com is my uh, website in transition, so you can see if I've made any changes <laughs> by looking at it. We're on the edge of our seat, Steve, waiting to find oh, yeah. out. It's going to happen someday, <laughs> yes. I promise. All right, until next week, y'all can put that cap right back on.